friends of the pod, we are back. Yes, as history suggests, I go missing in June, which may or may not be understandable given the absolute sporting bonanza we've had going on. We've had the NBA Finals, the Cricket World Cup, the Matildas at the Football World Cup, Ash Barty winning Roland, Ga- Roland Garros. Roland, rolling, rolling, Roland Garros? Roland. Roland. The Big Freeze, State of Origin, Pro League Hockey, and God knows what else. Back home, the AFL season is rolling through the bye rounds, and Richmond has chosen to make the season interesting by winning Cup number 12 from eighth spot. Meanwhile, the AFL is waging war against its own fans, unleashing hawk-like security guards down the aisles of Marvel Stadium. With me to dissect that and more is the esteemed editor of Sportsmate and a man who probably has not slept a wink since the Cricket World Cup started. Gordon Hunter-Meredith, welcome back to the booth. Yes, great to be back in the booth. And yeah, I, well, I have slept, but it's, it's different hours now. I've gone back to my old school. At university, I used to do what they call like Da Vinci sleeping. Da Vinci so sleeping. He had this theory that like sleeping for long periods of time is counterproductive. So what he did was he'd work for like four or five hours at a time and have like a 30-minute nap. And then repeat that forever. And that's pretty much what I do now. It's like I watch, I stay up, watch the World Cup. I have a little sleep between like three and five. Wake up, do work, have a little, have a little sleep between like three and five. Go again for six weeks straight. At Lloyd, well done, conquer. Good running there, Saad Rioli. Saad was brilliant. So I was at the footy on Friday night with an Essendon supporter and I threw out a little question. And the question was, who's your favourite Essendon player? And I only asked that question purely so she would ask me and then I could opine about how much I love Adam Saad. Um, so Michael Gleeson wrote a feature in The Age uh, where he basically went and had Ramadan dinner in Brunswick with the Saad family. Um, it's titled My Family and My Religion is Everything, Fast Break with Adam Saad. Now, I like this for a few different reasons. It has probably even more context now because of the Jeff Kennett comments. But I, I think that it's an under underexplored issue or it's something that I think is often looked at with Ramadan um, and people go oh my god how does this player survive and it doesn't necessarily focus on the deeper reasons and the deeper rationales behind fasting the sense of community that it brings the sense of family that it brings and so I felt like this piece was a really good way of bringing people into that conversation and actually giving more education about actually what this means to people, which is really, really important. And I guess the other context and reason that I love this is purely because the idea as a journalist of going and having dinner with your source and their family is just gold. Like that's like, that's such a brilliant way to go about writing your article and power to both Adam and Michael for actually being able to go through with and and execute it. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And I guess from a more personal point of view, Adam Saad. And I know Bob Murphy did a team of players that he would love to go and watch in the age, mm-hmm. which was interesting. Um, but he had Adam Saad in that team. And so I reckon if I had a team, it would be Adam Saad on one flank and Basha Hooli on the other. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I find he's one of the most entertaining reasons to go and watch Essendon when he gets the ball on halfback. It's, something's always going to happen that's relatively exciting. And you can't say that about... Actually, I say that, but I don't actually mind watching Essendon. No, but I say Essendon is like probably yeah. when they have the ball and going forward are one of the most exciting teams to watch. It's yeah. just that every other facet of the game is poor. <laughs> yeah, so I, actually I was like, I'm, gonna, oh, I'm not sure I like watching Essendon. No, that comment doesn't stack no, up. Essendon games are always yeah. good to watch. Yeah. It's just that if you're an Essendon fan, you're going to more likely lose. So. And I've watched them as a neutral multiple times mm. this year with enjoyment and Adam Side is one of the reasons why. So that was kind of a double whammy of uh, I wish I'd been the person that got to write this piece, but also it was very valuable, I think, in adding to that conversation beyond just the BT, oh my God, he's fasting, how does he do it? Style yeah. narrative, which you always get the quick little hot takey stories, Bajah Hooli's in Ramadan, it, he does it every year, he's been doing it for 15 years, yeah. go a bit deeper. And also like this, you know, there's a quite significant population in, in Australia that partake in Ramadan and mm. they do it without anyone knowing because it's like what they do. It's ceaseless. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. Having been in Morocco during Ramadan, it's different over there as well because it's the height of summer, so it's harder. Hmm. But um, the way that they adapt is is really interesting. Um, like Marrakesh in Ramadan, something to really behold because it's pretty much dead until the sun goes down hmm. and then it literally goes and turns into like a party city from about nine to – and party not in the sense of everyone's boozing, but just there's so much going on from hmm. like 9 p.m. till 3 a.m., and then everyone goes to bed and no one wakes up early the next... Or everyone will wake up after another three hours to eat and then go back to bed until midday. It's super, super interesting. So um, being able to kind of explore that and bring people into that, I think is, yeah, really important. Because, again, not everyone has had the opportunity to walk around 
uh, Morocco in the middle of Ramadan and experience what that's like um, and how hospitable people actually are. Um, I remember we had dinner one night in Marrakesh at a little Moroccan cafe and as we were finishing up, we were finishing up as the sun was going down and the family were coming out to eat their ifta, and they invited us to sit with them. And we actually quite foolishly declined, but we only declined because we'd just eaten and we didn't really want to eat their food given they'd been fasting all day. But in retrospect, I kind of wish we'd gone, oh, like we, sh- we don't need the food, but we'll sit and chill. <laughs> I don't know why it's happening and I don't know why it's come to this fruition, but this year feels like the, you know how every year everyone goes about the state of the game? Yep. This year is the first time I've feared for the state of the game, not the actual game on the field, but the, like the actual game itself, that the top flight game and how it's being run and how we're responding to it, how we're interacting with it, all of it. And it's this duality. So we've, we've come out and we've said that social media abuse is terrible, but if I pay a ticket and enter the ground, then abuse is my paid-for right. It's part of my purchase. I get to do whatever I want and say whatever I want, to whoever I want, whenever I want, when I pay for a ticket. I don't understand that. But if I go online and do it, I'm a terrible, terrible human. Player abuse is not on as well. But umpire abuse is part of the game. We've been doing it for 150 years. I should be able to call any umpire I want a green maggot or a bald-headed flog. But if I do it to a player, I'm an absolute disgrace. Back to the players, striking a tagger off the ball if they get under your skin is defendable. Dusty did it. Danger did it. Ablett did it three times before he got actually caught out. But And it's not worth a suspension unless you repeat it many times. But if I pinch a forward, then it's a crime against the game and I should be shunned, I should be banned, I should be abolished, I'm a disgrace, I should have my captaincy stripped. And then I will come out on social media and say, you wouldn't do that to Barry Hall because he'd clock you. Because clocking someone is appropriate for being pinched. I don't understand this duality of morals. Sportsmanship is demanded at all times. If you shove someone after the ball or go a little cheapy off the ball or give someone some lip after they kick it out in the full, you're a disgrace. But if you high-five an act of skill from a mentor of yours and an idol of yours, just a cheeky high-five at a point of the game where the game's absolutely dead, what Sydney Stack did to Eddie Betts, then that's a disgrace. You're bringing the whole game into disrepute. It doesn't make any sense. And then it all off. Apparently sports gambling is a blight in the game and its participants, and we have this massive problem with sports gambling, but a vast majority of clubs accrue a huge proportion of their income from pokey machines, which has a far higher rate of use, addiction and damage than sports books. So I understand everything happens in context, but do I have to carry around like a translative guidebook to see which set of morals I use at which time, depending on the context, the ground or the teams I'm following? Like I don't understand what it means to be a football participant, fan, follower, a person of Melbourne anymore. It doesn't make any sense. I, I come in and part of my job is to have opinions on football events and I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to be with the majority here. I know what's right and wrong. I know the social norms. And I go in and try and say, yeah, this is how I think. And then suddenly, like, no, 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 not in this context. Not in this context. It makes no sense. I, I am completely lost when it comes to the morals of our game. Do you need a hug? I need more than a hug. <laughs> I need... <laughs> I've come to, like, football existential crisis. Wow. So I'm going to reel that back. Let's go into that. Pinching. Did yep. you think this was the crime that it was cut out to be? Like, it's sure it's bad. Like, he was, it, like, and he was, he, the guy was physically hurt. He had bruises. He had signs of abuse. Like, I understand it. But what I don't understand is that that is, that was like pillied. That was like, he was, he was made like, like people were asking for him. Like, that's not captain behavior. But as I said, like when Dusty whacked someone, when Dangerfield whacked someone, when Fife whacked someone because they're getting tagged, it's like, oh, no, that's just part of the game. You're allowed to defend yourself. You're allowed to tell the tagger to bugger off. Yeah, but How, how is assault like less bad than pinching? Mm, no, I get it. So, but what is it about the actual act of pinching that incites Apparently people? it's like sneaky. It's the same with like the ball tampering thing in cricket. Is it because it's, it's and, like, and man catting? Like man catting is allowed, but it's like sneaky. It's but it's not, not part of the game. It's not manly. It's, not, I, it's like, not front on. Like I get it. It's annoying, but like you're not going to lose your arm with pinching. Yeah. Like I, I know. like so I was like, is it because it's like the petty thing that you do on the school, like this in the schoolyard? Like I was. Yeah. It's not. It's not manly. Pro, it's like, not masculine. Pro, pro, yeah. So proportionately, I was like, he pinched him. Like it's not like he's not. There's not serious bodily harm. So at risk here. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I don't like always harping back to Andrew Gaff, but we're still running an Andrew Gaff redemption story and he broke, like that's infinitely, and don't get me wrong, he was condemned. But the two things, and if you look at the level of media response and the condemnation, condemnation is virtually the same. Yeah. One bloke 
was in hospital for 12 weeks with a broken jaw or what it like you know he was drinking through a straw for yeah. a week Ang- angus andrew andy brashaw andrew uh, there's too many brashaws yeah <sighs> james andy angus um the other guy had a nice, colourful flock of bruises on the back of his arm. A flock of mm. bruises, Gordon. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I feel, and I, that's against the narrative. Everyone's like, oh, my God, pinching his dead. And I was like, he, he pinched him. Like, it's not great, but, like, he didn't kill anyone. He also stomped him as well. And the stomp goes under the radar. Like, that's, that's infinitely more. Which part of him did he stomp? I think his foot. Like, his like stomp. Infinitely like more. broken his yeah, foot. Infinitely more dangerous. Infinitely more dangerous. That's like you could fracture bones in the foot. Yeah. But also, like footy go, boots are thin. But also, we go through, like we go through all this talk about player protection, and then we have debates about whether or not an elbow to the head is is reportable or not. But a pinch or it's, a series of pinches is straight to the tribunal. Is straight to the tribunal and a definite one weaker. Yeah, like I don't understand the duality. No, I, I'm with you there, 100. percent Because that was my first thing. I was like, oh, that isn't great. Yeah, he's bruised, but like, then it just blew up. Mm. Like. Yeah, and I, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Alistair Clarkson, but like I kind of felt a little bit like on board with what he was saying to the media in that it was overblown and overplayed. I know he was doing that for a particular purpose, hmm. but clearly he wants to protect his man. But hmm. yeah, I don't think it's a hangable offence. As in like, I, it makes sense to say don't do it. It makes sense. Like if he gets a week, sure. Hmm. But all I'm saying is that then if that's a week, then you have to start making sure that you punish people who actually commit reportable offences. Yep. Like yep. A gut punch off the ball is worse than pinching someone's tricep. Yep. So just like there is no way that you can argue against that. Mm. If I come up to you in the street and pinch you, versus come up to the street and punch you in the sternum, how I get reprimanded is very different. Yep. Don't do either to me in the street, please. Yes, obviously. And that's the point. Don't do either. But the the... Mm. The actual consequences are different. Yeah. So jumping a little bit elsewhere, the stack bets high five. Mm-hmm. Was this a, an issue where we created false balance? Because when I immediately, it was pointed out that there were a lot of people who thought it was amazing and like a very minimum number. And then we're running polls that like, oh, is it? Sorry, there was a minimum number who was like, oh, that's that shouldn't happen. Nah, no, nah, that's. I think that's your own. No, nah. that's your own that, bias. So that's my own. That's twi- your own bias of surroundings. Yeah, Twitter bias. Because yeah. I was the same. I thought. I did my quick check-in with the people I talked to about sports, and I was yeah. like, how great was that? And they were like, yeah, that's pretty great. And then the next day I went into the office and everyone hated it. Okay. So, like, the broader like, – it was 50-50. If mm. not, actually, probably the other way, where more people hated it than enjoyed it because okay. it's not – they're not trying hard enough. Like, yeah. if, you, if you acknowledge skill of the opposition, like, you, you do that after the game, as yeah. Gary Lyons said on SEM. Yeah. So did you read the Des Headland piece on AFL.com.au about this? Mm. Which – I thought was a really, really important opinion because it explained, I guess, the brotherhood of the Indigenous players and how part of that gesture is an acknowledgement of Eddie saying to Sydney, I know what you've been through to get here. I respect you and I see you mm. and vice versa. Mm. And so this is just this is bigger than the, the win-loss, the scoreboard, et cetera, for me. But also, and I think that's what that Des Headland piece, which I would encourage anyone who's looking for sort of explanations of this, go and read literally an ex-Indigenous AFL player mm-hmm. tell you what this is about. Don't listen to Gary Lyon. All, no, all opinions in this case are valid because Gary's played the game as well. No, no, because like, so what I'll say to you is you've coached before. Mm-hmm. You've coached high-level sport before. So we're losing and there's an amazing Tomahawk goal. We play hockey, obviously. Amazing Tomahawk goal from our opposition. We're losing. Uh, that goal puts us 4-1 down with three minutes to go. So we can't win the game. Yep. But it's an amazing Tomahawk goal. And I've played state with, that, with the guy who's just scored the goal. And he's scored it on me. We've been tussling all day. We're, we're, we're at direct opponents. And I just walk past him and go, oh, you cheeky sod, and give him a cheeky high five because we know each other. We're mates. We play together in other, in other situations at other, at other levels. And I go, oh, you got me there, you cheeky bugger. And I give, him a, I give him a high five. It's not a big high five, but probably less bigger than what they did. And probably that's part of the reason why it became such a big issue. It was, it was very big. It was very, a, bit, a little bit over the top, sure. But I give him a cheeky high five, walk past him and go, yeah, you got me. I'll get you next time. Would you be upset? Would you give me a grilling? Would you say you're not trying hard enough? Would you say? No. Because it's not that act. I can acknowledge that. We do this all the time in cricket and people go, cricket's different to footy. Cricket's a gentleman's game. Well, look back at cricket. It's not very gentleman-like at all. Mm. But when someone scores a century, you acknowledge them. When someone clean bowls you, you kind of give them a head, like a little tap of their head and go, that ball was too good. 
like there are moments in sport where you can just be like, game respects game. Like tennis has it a lot. Mm. Mm. Tennis has it all the time, and tennis is like full of the brattiest, most petulant, yeah. self-obsessed people in the world. Yes. Yeah. So this thing. No. Well, be a thing. and this is where maybe a younger version of myself would have taken this differently, but the way that my value system sits now, I wouldn't have a problem with and it. And see, I actually think it's the opposite way. I think it's the young people saying, yes, sport's about winning and losing, but it's also about recognising moments of greatness. And it's also recognising context and it's recognising development. It's recognising story. Yeah. It's yeah. recognising yeah. everything. Like sport yeah. doesn't exist in a vacuum anymore. Yeah, that wasn't everyone's younger self. That was just my younger self. Yeah. But what I mean is like the younger, like the younger generation now sees that, understands that mm. and goes, no, that's appropriate. I am allowed to go... I bloody love you, Eddie Betts, and I, I know I've, be, I've been beating you all day and giving it to you, giving you a stick, and then you went, "Nah, you little young fella, sorry, mate, I've still got tricks in the bag that you don't you don't understand yeah. yet." Here's here's your place, and in a way, actually, it was Eddie Betts putting Stack back in his place. It as was. Well. It was pretty funny. It was a it was an actual sign of like him showing his authority over the player. Yeah. So yeah. if you're all about that bravado and that manliness and that masculinity, Betts actually just did that. He just didn't go up and push him. He went, "Nah, nah." Like, come here, this is what you do, young fella. Get back in your Well, box. the byplay of that, if you and watching the game closely, was the smother, mm, multi, like a few minutes yeah. before, which was brilliant, but at the same time, like, Stack gave him one. Yeah. And so this was like the, no, I got you. Yeah. Sorry, you cheeky bugger. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have any issues with it, but go read the Des Headland piece, People of the Game. Yes, great work, lads. Experience the amazing live atmosphere of AFL up close at Australia's best venue at Metricon Stadium. Well, as everyone would know, um, not everyone, but some people know I was up in Brisbane for for a bit of uh, a bit of a work little hiatus, and I decided to trek down the highway. I don't know what highway highway it was to Metricon Stadium, previously known as Carrara, once the home of the Brisbane Bears. What was the vibe like? Well, there wasn't one. Can there? What was it like? They just it just didn't exist. There was absolutely no vibe whatsoever at this game. There was 9,305 people for North v. the Gold Coast in a 25,000 capacity stadium. There was more energy at the Kurua Surf Club on the beach afterwards. I can honestly tell you that. And it was a really sort of casual Saturday night sort of Gold Coast areas. Um, The ground is in a weird spot. So it's kind of out of the Gold Coast, kind of where the theme parks are. The theme parks now look uber depressing when you are old and you just drive down the highway and there's just wet and wild and you're like, oh, it's a bit rusty. Um, Carrara fits in a very similar booth. The, the shame of the location is it's you have to drive, which is a pain, but mm. the ground itself is actually quite nice. Like if you're on level two at Carrara, you have a very, very good, it's up there with the Etihad level two for viewing, like for the niceness of the view. Yeah. Um, but there was just no one there. There was no mood. And I guess the sitting in the outer, the kind of thought that occurred to me was like, what would this feel like if the suns were good? And I don't know how It'd much- feel like going to footy at Giant Stadium. Which is not- And so funnily, thanks for that, Seg, you, you've done really well there. Um, the average attendance at Metricon is 11,701. The average attendance at Giant Stadium is 11,325. So that's the lowest of all the grounds that are permanent fixtures. So that excludes Ballarat, Marara, and Shanghai. (laughs) 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 I know you laugh, but like of the permanent AFL grounds that host more than two games a year, it is the second lowest and Giant Stadium is the lowest. Um, So there's just a not, it's not a lot of energy. And to be honest, the game itself, like watching the Kangaroos and the Gold Coast, was probably I had high expect. I don't know why I had any expectations of the day. Like North, I know we're coming off a good win against Richmond, but they kicked seven goals early and put the whole thing to bed. Um, clearly, the curse of Carrara plagued the Bears when they were there because they left for the Gabber in '93. Um, Gold Coast is a curse, full stop. Like every, I just, no, it's just weird. So what is it? Like you, when you were in the Gold Coast for a while, like is it like do people just not care? Does no one live there? Like, why can't we have a team in the Gold Coast? Because every sporting association in Australia at a top flight professional level is obsessed with having a team yeah. in Gold Coast, and I don't understand why. No, I agree. Because So I was mostly in Brisbane. I only day-tripped to the Gold Coast. But even in Brisbane and reading the Courier-Mail, and obviously it was Origin Week as well, footy just doesn't get cut through. The Lions do when they're successful in, br- all 10, in Brisbane. But, I mean, they get more page in the Courier than because the Gold Coast has its own paper. Yeah. But I just, I just don't feel like... If you live on the Gold Coast, you're that into footy. 
Like, I just it just doesn't seem to get the. No, cut I think through. if you live in the Gold Coast, you're in a footy. But who lives in the Gold Coast? Not the that, Gold Coast is quite yeah. large. Oh. It's quite big. no, it is. It's is got it? like quite a large like because yeah. the Gold Coast is more than just like the downtown area and the beach. Mm, mm, mm. But like, it's very transient. It's like very tran- it's it's like it's like the equivalent to Vegas in America. And so yes, like you're Vegas right. sports yeah. teams don't succeed because you don't oh. go to Vegas to go to watch sport. Yeah. No, I think that's probably the cru- the crux of it. Yeah. Um Yeah, and I just you're right though. That doesn't feel like the reason if I wouldn't go to the Gold Coast for the like I know they try and big up the travel packages now for the uh, the Melbourne clubs like Every time Richmond go up there, I get an email like, oh, hmm. go watch Richmond on the Gold Coast. Go watch Richmond on the Gold Coast. I'm like, well, no. I just go to the Gold Coast. Yeah. yeah like, I'll go for the beaches and I'll go for the sun and I'll yeah. go for the, the strip mall and whatever. So but, maybe yeah. maybe that's the, the crux of the um, the issue. But yeah, I, like I'm not sad I went because I caught up with some friends who have been who have recently got engaged, um, mm-hmm. which is obviously, obviously always a love a good old happy couple, a um, couple of beautiful pugs as well. So that was fun. And they're not footy people, so that was kind of enjoyable um, to see uh, one of my friends who's a rugby fan nomming on a pie. But uh, they yeah. do sell pies, the rugby man. Do they? Yeah, oh. it's, it's oh. a, like they sell pies. At you've all. changed. You've just changed my world. They they sell pies at all football. You've literally just changed my life. Um, so yeah, Metricon probably is is a very 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 lukewarm cold pie that I didn't enjoy. So how much, if you were the AFL, how much do you persist in this experiment before you say, look? Doesn't matter how good they will be. Doesn't matter if they if Stewie Jew turns this team into a top eight team. We're not going to get any more than eleven thousand people there. It's not going to take off in Gold Coast. We need a team in Tassie. I'm leading the witness a little bit, but if I was CEO, I'd be moving to Tassie. Like, and I would potentially, I mean, solve the problem. the The Lions could play a couple of games a year at Carrara. Like, that would be my way of. Well, the deep irony is that Gold Coast don't even play all their games at Metricon. They played a game in Townsville on the weekend. Mm. So not even mm. they are committed to the Gold Coast experiment. Mm. No, I 100% agree with that. Um, so, yes, I would move them to Tassie. I would not call them the Suns. I would just, you know, start again, call them the Devils. And Well, and if you don't keep a part of the name, then you you would just deban- like disbanding <laughs> them and then creating a new team in Tasmania. I mean, I just, I just can't get sentimental about disbanding them, though. Like, if they died tomorrow, like, I... Don't think I would care. There's no. Yeah, you wouldn't care, but people. Some people would care. Yes, I'm. I'm. I know. I'm not all people. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't have a huge effect on my heartstrings. Hmm. Um, certainly, like if we're going to lose a club, <laughs> it's the least pain, isn't it, to lose the Gold Coast? Yeah. Well, there's no comparison. Except, except it. It would. It proved that the AFL was wrong, and failed in this experiment. So that and is they, why we'll never, they'll no, never do it. It'll never happen. We'll yeah. get teams in Tassie and the NT before they just ban Gold Coast. Mm. I think it would be my prediction. Yep. And we en- we'll end up as a 20-team comp, I think, by 2030. Um, well, just impromptu hot takes. It's been a year of controversy for the AFL, and now fans are finally having their say. More than 11,000 supporters have been surveyed, and they're not happy. Gil McLaughlin, when he started in this job, said his priority would be the fans, but clearly what we've seen in the last few weeks with the security crackdown, that it's gone too far. 40% say their love of the game has diminished this year. The people's question this week. So we've spoken a little bit already about fan behaviour. You're confused. The question is, has the AFL gone too far in the crackdown on fan behaviour? So my first question to lead this off for you, Gordon Hunter-Meredith, is why are they cracking down now? Like what specifically about the game this year has made the AFL go... We need to crack down on fan behaviour. I don't quite know. I think many aspects. I think social media means that when something when something happens, it becomes an issue very quickly, mm-hmm. and then the AFL needs to be seen to act. I don't actually think that there's been more incidences of um, like criminality or like fights or malaise or whatever than previous seasons. Yep. I think they're just being broadcast because people will film them and sell them to media agencies. Yep. And then it ends up on the front page. And then it ends up on the front page. Or more importantly, on the front page of Facebook or on the front page of Twitter or on the front page of their website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's a thing, and they want it to be a thing, and so they send out the email. There's been another melee at the football, how horrific. They'll get their clicks and they'll move on. But then the AFL is like, and how will the AFL respond? Like, how will they deal with this? 
And if anything, it creates it creates a story. So you force the AFL to respond as a media agency because you want another story out of it. Mm-hmm. Then you so the AFL has to respond. So they go and they do this. They go police state essentially on on fans, and then they go, "Oh, they went too far, didn't they?" And now it's a talking point, and they'll readjust. And it's like, "Oh, then they listen to us." And then like, so that's I get really cynical about this because I feel like it's not an issue. Mm. I understand like it's it's just like life. Like yes, there will be a proportion of people that do the wrong thing at the wrong time always and it should be our aim as a group of a collective group of people sports people or not wherever we are but especially at sporting environments where it is we're going there for a enjoyable and for a recreational purpose to go we should all act in a way that helps us enjoy this and helps others enjoy this and if we see something that's going wrong and we're or we're doing something ourselves that's, that's making other people feel uncomfortable and we should check ourselves but We've been doing that for 150 years. And you've mentioned the Joffa piece in the age in our show notes here. And as he said, we tend to self-regulate. We've been self-regulating for so long. And I think it's worked for the vast majority of cases. And for the cases where it hasn't worked, there are police present. There are security guards present. And you text the number. And you text the number. We have a process in place and it works. Like we don't have riots. Like we're one of the very few sports in the world or very few contact sports as well, super charged up masculine environments where opposition fans can sit next to each other in peace. And do readily. And do readily and chant and yell and scream and get involved and, and maybe give us some cheeky jibes. And then when the, once the whistle goes, everyone goes, oh, well, you're a human, I'm a human. That was fun, wasn't it? I'll see you next week. Mm. Have you not- So have you noticed this, like the crackdown personally at any games? On the- Were you at any games on the weekend yeah, where yeah, you actually yeah. felt it? I saw it. I didn't feel it. Okay. What do you say? Talk, talk me, give me the background narrative. Well, I'm like, I often sit in AFL members. I get that through work. So that's just like, I'm not going to pay for games if I don't have to. That's just my privilege. And so I'm not, in, I'm not usually in the more vocal areas of the ground. Yep. But you can see them. And you saw them at Eddie Head, especially. You saw people walking down. And you could see it on television when you watch the replay. You could see people. Yeah. You, you could, could see yeah, the security yeah. guards breaking up. The security guard broke up a fight between two players. No. Well, sorry. He was going to. Well, he tried to. I actually think that's a separate issue. No, but as in like, as in they just, they just, and it's not their fault either. Like they've obviously been told, you see anything, you break it up. Mm. Like they're not doing this out of their own. They didn't just decide as no, like. Don't shoot the messenger, yeah. Yeah, they didn't just decide as like the security guard front of, of Marvel Stadium. They're like, oh, well, we're taking this into our own hands. Like, no, they're getting told what to do. Like, that's a, rebel, that's, rebel security yeah, guards. it's just their job. But like, it's obviously, yeah, the AFL and Marvel Stadium would be on, no, we need to crack down on this. This. Whatever this is, and suddenly this is everything. This is chanting too hard, yelling mm. too hard, being told. And it's the, it, we've seen this issue before. It's happened before in the A-League where they had instances of flares. And so instead of saying you can't bring things into the stadium, they said you can't be an active fan anymore. Even though, just like with cheer clubs, that's a specific area of the ground. If you don't want to be a flag-waving, screaming, yelling, glitter jacket-wearing person, you don't sit there. Mm. You don't go into that environment and then complain about well, yeah. how they act. I think there's an element of that because you do pick your section. So there are dry zones, there are family zones, and I and the AFL members and then the MCC and then the cheer squad areas. And you kind of made the point off air that all of those areas have a separate set of social norms. Mm. Like if you're watching the game in a dining room, you're going to behave differently. differently to if you're sitting in the front row of the Collingwood cheer squad. And this is the point that Joffa made as well, is that often it's the people who watch the games and exist in those dining room environments that tell the people who in, who in the GA or in the in the old outer, as they used to call it, or in the active fan yeah. participation areas, how to act. And what their norms should be. Yeah. And they don't know what the norms are in those environments. Yep. So is the solution to send Gil down for a day out with Joffa? Well, no, but it's it's... Not for a day out, because I don't think I think Gil would just be scared, honestly. But it's more the point that Gil should when he has these when he has these conversations with the fans. Apparently, mm. like when he first came into his office in 2014, he had the direct quote saying that he wants to make this the most fan friendly sport in Australia. Mm. That was his direct quote. That meant AFLX, I think. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was more about ticket pricing at the time. So that was back when they had compulsory reserve seating at AFL games. Yeah, he abolished that to an extent. And then reflipped on it again, um, but yeah, he didn't want to have. He got rid of that kind of um, adjustable pricing de- uh, that was on demand. He, yeah, food pricing, food pricing into a little bit, blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, now he's now again he's forgotten a massive part of sport is fans. Yep. 
Like you, th- this game exists because people watch it. So do we agree with Chris Judd or do you agree with Chris Judd on Footy Classified saying that we're pandering to snowflakes? I think we're pandering to the Twitterati. We're, t- we're pandering to the noise. And the noise is coming, like, and obviously that their snowflake takes on Twitter. But, like, if someone's, so you're not a snowflake if you're at the ground and you feel uncomfortable and you use the hotline and you text them and you say, I feel uncomfortable. Ideally, the situation would be is that if you felt uncomfortable, we're, we're human enough as a, as a group of football fans to go and turn to the person next to us or ask our friend to say something or do something that actually involves the person that's perpetrating the incident and say, hey, mate, can you just calm down? Like you've been slapping the chair in front of me pretty hard tonight and I'm, I don't, I'm just a bit scared and a bit shook and I would appreciate if you just like calm down a little bit. You're, you're upsetting my child, you're upsetting me, like whatever. And if that doesn't work, then you text the number and then someone will come down, assess the situation and go, oh, perhaps you're overreacting or perhaps, no, they need to be pulled into line or perhaps they need to be taken out of the situation. We already have that process in place. What happens now, though, is that with social media, people jump on when they're not at the ground and say, oh, did you see this? And did you see this? Or they saw this video and they didn't watch or they just saw a headline. They didn't read the whole thing. They take everything out of context and then they react and it blows up and gets retweeted and it gets passed on and everyone has their own opinion on things they didn't actually have full context of. Context is the issue always and it's the one thing we're missing in this current environment. And so when Chris Judd says we're pandering to the snowflakes, we're pandering to the hot takers, in my opinion. So question for you again, you've umpired a lot of sport. I think you're a bald-headed flog. Mm-hmm. How would you, would that offend you as an umpire? Is that crossing a line? Just for context. Yeah, yeah, you are, I mean, I think it's a factually correct statement. Yeah, I am a bald-headed flog. <laughs> I'm optionally bald, but I'm bald-headed nonetheless. You are an optionally bald-headed flog. Yep. So, yeah, and that happened to me all the time. But it, I, it does, in, and having umpired hockey, it happens. And it happens to you more, more likely than not in big games, and it happens more likely than not in big moments. But does it happen more in the ammos than the professional? Uh, it, happen, it happens just as much. Okay. Um, the difference is, is the it's, – again, it's context. So I remember being at a, a hockey final. Uh, so, yeah, State League, very important game. Uh, and the, ch- the chant went around the umpire, a very famous umpire, Anthony Trail, uh, Gave away a penalty stroke and then the Greensboro fans cheered up and went, the trail is a wanker chant. The whole, the whole, the whole stadium, essentially. Gets the Carlton Gear squad into trouble, yeah. that one. a couple of thousand people. Now, yeah. was he offended? No. He's umpired at a higher level than that. He's umpired at AHL. He's done a bunch of other stuff and he just realised that, cool, he made a decision that people disagree with and that's how they responded. The difference is when it's personal. As you said, like personal abuse versus group abuse. That's but- not, they're not, they're not, in essence, what they are actually saying if we use our brains, is that they're saying, we disagree with your decision. But you can't chant that. We disagree with your decision. We really, really, really disagree with your decision. doesn't work. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Whereas umpires a wanker does. Yep. So that's the context. However, if you as an individual are standing near the race and you go to, and I touch you or point you out or yell like expletives at you, that probably so be worse than- Razor, you. you are a wanker. Pointed yeah. straight at his face. Yeah. Spittle or fire. Razor, I hope you die. Or Razor, meet me in the car park. Or extrapolations on that, yep. which I've also received as an umpire. Yep. Then that's that's different. That's abuse. That's yep. that's vilification. That's all those things. Mm. That's different to what a cheer squad does. So, in the, is the moral it, disagree with the decision and play? I mean, to coin a phrase, play the ball and not the man. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the entity. When when thirty thousand people do it, they're playing the ball. When one person does it to another person, they're playing the man. Mm-hmm. That's the context. Yep. So has this made you, this dialogue, made you reflect on your nothingness as a football barracker? Well, again, I don't have And this is the problem. You're I probably the, you're 100%. I need to be asking myself that question. Yeah. So I know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the question. <laughs> so we went to the game. We went to the Richmond Collingwood oh, game here we go. in the season. Here we go. And you behave like a tosser. Well, you did. Did I? You did. I mean, you, I was- you, were, you were yelling and you were screaming and- we could do this podcast and we talk about beautiful moments of the game and beautiful marks and whatever. And then I think it was Dugowie that took an amazing grab on someone. Yeah, he sat on Oleg Markov's head. Yeah, Oleg Markov's don't, head. Don't worry, mate. I remember. Yes. 
and then you were slapping the chair in front of you going, that's a body in the back three. What's going on? That's ridiculous. And you're slapping the chair and this poor lady in front of us is looking a little bit afraid of like, what's this man going to do if they actually lose? And then eventually the, the, the loss became so eminent that you calmed down because the game was clear. Well, no, and the other thing is you actually tapped me on the shoulder. And I tapped you on the side and was yeah. like, mate, can you, you can pull it in a little bit. Come on. And that's all that needs to happen. Yeah. Like we can self-regulate. Yeah. The only time I've ever I felt properly scared this year was the Anzac Day game, yep. which we've already talked about, and I think that's alcohol-related. And I honestly yep. feel a lot more scared when I go to the pub to watch footy than when I go to the ground. Agree. Because the alcohol flows quicker, it's cheaper. And it's full strength. And it's full strength, and you could, it, you're just allowed to drink more, and then people get aggro when they're on the piss. Yeah, agree. And that's when you lose context and then you lose self-regulation. Mm. Well, it's kind of made me think about, and I know uh, shout-outs to Charlotte Grieve, who's one of my uh, mates who's working at The Age at the moment, and she wrote a story with uh, where she interviewed Michael Vozzo, who has received death threats from sort of the end of his umpiring career mm. and still has a stalker. Kind of made me think that, it, I think in a lot of cases, and I thought this similarly last year with the Jesse Hogan bonanza, where I was relatively critical of some of his mannerisms, hmm. um, and then it kind of came out that, uh, his he had testicular cancer and his father had just passed away and I was like well yeah okay these these uh, again it was just a reminder of the humanity of the people that are involved and so I guess my thought process out of this conversation is to just play the ball rather than the man in almost every Situation. instance where possible um, and to try and avoid full nuffy mode if I if I can do it um, which <laughs> is a lot easier at the moment because Richmond are just getting spanked so there's not even hope anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's been an interesting conversation. It's going to be unscientific from here. Lloyd just drives it into the middle of the ground. The dogs compel numbers at it. Wood knocks it down to Hunter back inside 50, but it's ill-directed. Jones gets hold of it for the Swans. Hand pass to Mills. Took a while at half back, but he spent it well. Franklin had it jarred from his grasp by Morris. Naismith had a touch in there, so ah, Franklin run down by Morris, who's been epic. Tom Boyd from long range. This would be fitting. It bounced on its point. Wow. The fates, the gods are with the dogs. That changed direction in the goal square. It cancels out the score review. And Tom Boyd stands as the million-dollar champion. He's kicked through. So, book club. The Lost Art of Deadline Writing by James Parker was a little article published on The Atlantic, essentially questioning whether we have gone away from poetry-level match reporting in our professional sport. The piece is a discussion of the great American sports page, a century of classic columns from Ring Lardner to Sally Jenkins by John Shulian. Uh, that's a new book that's just come out. And quite interestingly, there's a similar book coming out in Australia called Electrifying 80s, which has been released by Slattery Media, which is an anthology of sports writing from the 80s. And the premise of part of the premise of that book is that the action on the field was memorable, but the writing was also richly memorable in a way that it isn't today. So my first question for you and first kind of discussion point is in the age where we now have highlights so readily available at our phone screen... Why do we sit down or why would we sit down and read a full match report the next day when we can essentially click through and see the Eddie Betts goal from the pocket? Well, I suppose the answer is we don't. Like, mm. We don't. But that's why I think this we get we get lost in the poison of nostalgia here. We're like <laughs> we're like, oh we don't we don't do we don't have classic columns anymore. Well we still have classic writers and we still have classic pieces. They're just not straight sports descriptions. Yep. Because, and there's a bit in here where it talks about like VAP is the best description for like a, a, a hard ball hitting a wooden bat, whether that's cricket, they don't use cricket in this one, but whether that's cricket in our case in Australia or baseball in America, like that, that the, the use and the syllabus of the word BAP. Onomatopoeia. Yeah, is amazing. But I can see that now. I can hear the BAP with my KO subscription. <laughs> so I don't need to, and you don't need someone to write BAP. And if anything, if someone does, did write BAP, it'd be tweed. Mm. And I sort of think this thing, this kind of whole, this whole piece kind of gets lost in the nostalgia of Tweed when you go back and like, if someone tried it, if you try to write these pieces that they wrote in the 1920s and get them published in The Guardian, where you currently write occasionally, you wouldn't get it published. Have you um, ever flicked through the Argus match reports from the early 1900s? Yeah, yeah. Like, I love them, but they're, they're historical artifacts. You could never consume that style of report about a game of footy now mm. because it doesn't work with an inverted pyramid. 
it just is literally like, what are you writing? Newspaper mm. writing has changed so much over a hundred years. Mm. There's some absolute humdingers. You mm. find some, there's some things in there that you just piss yourself laughing at. I can't remember. There's an example that I want to draw upon and it's a really innocuous St Kilda Carlton game from fuck knows what year where there was a huge brawl and it was just hilarious. And I think, no, that's what it was. There was a huge brawl and the, the sports writer basically concluded he didn't write about the game. It's like, this game was so terrible that I refuse to tell you what happened. I will mm. just tell you they all behave like thugs and this was the end score. And I was just like, yes, yes, but you could not do that today. No, and it's the same. The same piece is used here where, because like back in the back in these days, the, the, the halcyon days of sports writing, these were privileged white men that just did what they want. They were boozing, smoking. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, silly hat wearing people. That would do what they want and say what they want and write what they want and their editors could be damned. There's one bloke that wrote a whole piece saying, like, bagging out his own editor for, for not putting him on the beat of a football game. And it got published. <laughs> Which is so weird. If we did that, we'd get fired. Yeah, or just, or they just would, not pay. Ne- they would never commission well, they, you again. Well, they wouldn't commission it. They wouldn't commission you. They wouldn't pay you for the work and you wouldn't get published. So it's like it doesn't make any sense. There's a moment in, the, in, the, in this uh book review essentially that says that sports writing has become less about poetry and it's more about like the granular analysis of of the game and it's become more multi-voiced so you, you, know, you don't just go to the newspaper anymore for sports writing you go to a podcast or a game recap you go to the highlights or you go to like a sports center for the for the visual game recap you go to a, a ko highlights package you go to the afl.com you go to the club website etc cetera, etc cetera. but that just means that we get all of our sports takes in different ways. But I think the actual poetry, what happens, what happened with sports writing back in the day is that not many people had access to the game. Mm. So you either go to the game and you watch it, but you watch it from, there was no TV screens, there was no replays. If you missed something, you missed it. There was, well, not, like 1910s, not even had a radio. The 1930s and 40s, not even had a TV. You very rarely saw the moment happen. So you were reliant on people to describe it in a way that tra- like transported you there. Now, we don't need that to an extent, but I think the poetry of sports writing is now the, sp- the poetry of sports calling. So the Jared Waitleys of the world bring us into those moments. Like the Richmond Grand Final will forever be ingrained with that, with that call. The same with the yeah, Bulldogs. Yeah, there's an ABC mashup of the eight, eight minutes ABC of the Waitley calls of the Bulldogs final series. Mm. It, I'm in tears by the five-minute mark every time, like, and full-on mm. dropping off my cheeks. Yeah. So that point, I think, is a very poignant one. And, that and, the, just, same, and the same within the history yeah. of, like, of Tim Lane and Rex Hunt. Yeah. Oh, up, up country finger-breaking mongrel punches. And, that's, and that's, that's, that's a type of language that they're saying that doesn't exist anymore. It just mm. exists elsewhere. And, no, even, and even to the extent of BT, like, people may, not like his, may or may not like his commentating style. And the same with JB on Triple M. But they have a poetic style that is a playful take on the game. Yep. Because often you have the privilege of being able to see it, so they add something to it with their mm. vocals. It still exists. It just doesn't exist on the page because that's not what we use newspapers for anymore. Yeah. And so, actually, it's really interesting then because I mentioned and linked some pieces in the, in the notes in the show which kind of show sort of some overall ways that match reporting kind of still exists, but the commonality in all those pieces have just run off down the bottom of the agenda because you cut and pasted something, is that they have an overarching narrative of the day woven through the story of the game. Hmm. So like Kim, if you kind of read Kimber and you read Lemon out of the Cricket World Cup at the moment, both, uh, I think Lemon is on The Guardian and Kimber's on Crick Info, they generally have these sort of narratives worn, like sort of woven through that tells you what the team is doing and how that team is progressing. So a couple of examples of that are um, Kimber on the Australia versus West Indies game in Nottingham, where he kind of had this overarching point throughout the piece that while Stark and Smith are still playing for Australia, they're a chance to win. Because mm. either of those players, Stark could literally just go ping, 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 ping with the new ball and wipe you out. Mm. Game over. And Smith, much the same um, with the way that he's able to bat. Um, Jeff Lemon wrote an entire piece about the Australia-Sri Lanka game that was just about Maxwell ball and mm. the way Glenn Maxwell bats. So within the game, there's something deeper that they're drawing out of it than just the play-by-play of what happened. Um, you don't get this as much in football, and you now get very systemic match reporting in a lot of cases. Is that because of the prevalence of clubland media and AFL media? No. I think it's on the significance of the event as well. Mm. So again, I think where the trap of this where this book review is is that it's like the seventy two best pieces from like one hundred and fifty years of sports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very easy to pick out some mm. absolute gems. 
there are moments that are written about, like Greg Baum writes some beautiful moments about football, and also it's the it's the poignant moments. So if you went back and looked at all of the the writings about Carlton's win after with that, with their first game with David Teague, there'd be some amazing moments there. But again, it doesn't have to be just because it's not a match report doesn't mean it's not good writing. And as you mentioned there, like they're, they're not strictly match reports by Lemon or Kimber either. Mm. And I think we have the we just realise now that people will have already seen the moment. If so, people have eyes. Mm. So they can see. So then your whole point, if you want to write something, say something, cut up something, make a highlight of something, you have to give something people can't see with their own eyes. Mm. That's the difference. doesn't matter how poetic you say it. If you have nothing good to say, they won't read it. You can say it with, with, with poeticness, but there has to, has to be a point to it as mm. well. And I think maybe that's the difference is maybe, maybe news agencies care less about, you know, writers who can – Right, and they just want journalists potentially. Yes, I think to an extent. Whereas, but then it's just you won't get in newspapers then, because I I still hire freelancers at, at Sportsmate that can write in a way that makes me want to read them. Yes. I want to read them for the words they say as much as for the point they make. Mm. They still have to have a point. Yes, correct. Whereas you're not going to, as I said before, you're not going to get a piece commissioned where they don't write about the sport at all. No. Um. I mean, the footy almanac as well fills a void. Mm. So one of the, they're kind of like the wisdom of footy. Mm. And they don't do the traditional big book. But if you go through, and I've got quite a lot of the old almanacs now, you can basically go and pick out a random significant game and read a take on it. Mm. Like I read Wally Daly write about going to the footy with Martin Flanagan. Um, I've re- read pieces by Jared Waitley. Mm. Um, the Bourm match report that I pulled out, because it specifically sticks in my head, was the 2017 qualifying final. And sometimes that style of thing, like the pure historical artifact match report, you don't get them that much, but that takes me back to being on there on the night, the mm. Bourne piece. Because I, I, it takes all the things that I remember and just says them beautifully. There's a beautiful line about um, the, the calendar says September, but the thermometer says July. Something similar, and th- and that's the thing. I remember that night being freezing, and then the prelim was like twenty eight degrees, and I was sweating. So, so I think the point I'm trying to make is they're still valuable, but there's a very there's less writers that do them, and with footy they tend to really only pull them out for the big games, the grand final, the big Melbourne final, etc. Um, so, what's the difference there then? Because I think. I think if we had more writers doing this and cricket showing this, so the Jeff Lemons, mm. the Jared Kemmers of the world are showing us that this is, this is doable. So why don't we do it more for footy? I don't know. I think we rely on the assumption that everyone watches the games first, which is incorrect because I quite often pick up the Sunday paper knowing that I want to read about what happened in the three games that were played mm. yesterday because I, that's what I do. I mean, I still want my sports news in that format rather than plucking through highlights. But also, well, two things as well. I think highlights are a very poor way to actually understand what happened. Absolutely. They don't tell you. They don't give you context as again. No. And this whole episode no. could just be called the context show because that's what I think we always miss. So in this highlight thing, you'll see, you know, a clip on a clip on Twitter. You'll see a clip on Facebook. You'll see a five-minute highlights package that the AFL put on YouTube. That doesn't give you the context of the game. That doesn't tell you, is this team progressing or is this team not progressing? It doesn't tell you their narrative of the season. That's where this writing comes in, into play. And I think it still exists. You just have to go out and find it. But... My my point is, is there still a appetite for it? Yes. Yes. I think so. Um, but then there's also a, a resourcing question. So in terms of what writers can churn out in what amount of time, the way that the age do their match reports is very condensed. It can be done quickly after the game, mm. um, et cetera, because you're essentially giving a nutshell of like 300 words of what happened and then your sort of four main talking points. Which is why when you point out authors like Jeff Lemon and Jerry Kimber, They've done their time doing that, and now they're not on that beat. Yeah. They're filing three hours, six hours after the event, which is still quick. It's still a deadline, but it's not. The if hour you're doing, If you're doing an actual match report, a recap piece, you're filing as soon as the last ball's been bowled, as soon as the last siren's gone, as soon as the runner breaks the tape. Yeah. It's a very different skill set. Absolutely. And it's a very different style of writing. And then to, to create this false comparison that oh, this, this poetic style of sports writing has faded into the into the distance is incorrect because there's a difference between sports writing and sports journalists, which is why I actually don't even like the title of this book where it says, like, the greatest piece of sports journalism. Mm. That's not journalism. 
what they were doing is not journalism. It's sports writing. They're writing, they're writing about and taking these huge embellishments into an event. Sports journalism would be doing your 300-word match report telling me what happened. It's like saying, oh, they wrote about that, that bomb going off in the building really boringly. Mm. Well, because, no, it's the 300-word hard news piece. And there's the 300-word hard sports news piece. Yeah. They're the same thing. They shouldn't be compared yeah. to what they've got now in the future. And there is a resourcing thing going on as well because the AFL's own newsroom is bigger than the – like, so the AFL's footy newsroom is bigger than the newsrooms of the Herald Sun and the Age for everything. So in terms of resourcing, it's very skew with. So also I think probably the other problem we've got then is – so for cricket, because they're national – it's a national competition and nations play each other. Everyone covers it. Well, not everyone covers it, but it's also there's no like they're all non for profits to an extent. There's no there's no need for the like for the clubs to own their own media, own their own brands. It's mm. like if cricket grows, cricket grows. We all make money. Who cares? Yeah, we all get to just do this thing, and so that's why Crick Infos exist, and that's why they give access to players, and that's why the Jared Kimbers and the Jeff Lemons of the world can do their pieces. Yeah, in AFL, it's oh we've got this, we should exploit it. Like we have. We have all our media. We have all our media things we need to do. We have all of our KPIs we need to hit. All of our sponsors we need to we need to impress. And so when we got a lovely piece, like a Ramadan piece that we saw, mm. more often than not, that would be done by the club. But does that make it less prevalent or less good? Mm. Lee Jenkins, an amazing sports writer, went and joined the Clippers. Mm. I think it's just where we find these pieces now. Mm. They still exist. It's just more likely to be. From like from an actual official source as opposed to a newspaper, the masthead changes, but the pieces are still the same. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to finish because I've just pulled up in my notes this match report I was referencing from this Carlton St Kilda game. It's actually better than I remembered it being. So this is the Argus, August two, 1897. I don't actually know the author because it wasn't he wasn't named, which is a historical oversight because he's brilliant. It's called Assault and Battery. Carlton and St Kilda played a characteristic Carlton St Kilda game at Princess Park to decide which of them should not be last. It was a benefit to football that the issue was so unimportant, for had they played for first place with proportionate passion, the strain on the accommodation of the adjacent hospitals would have been enormous. Thanks to the efforts of a few men, there was so much charging, slinging, tripping and generally unfair play that the greatest kindness one can show to these afflicted twenties is to tear up one's notes and say nothing further about it, save that Carlton won comfortably and that Aitken, who for the first time played forward, got three goals, while the smart little O'Cock and Chapman each accounted for a pair. Carlton, 8-11, defeated St Kilda, 3-7. 